0: Welcome to the latest episode in our Finals Countdown series, presented by MedTalks. We're doing a series of episodes targeted at final year medical students as you prepare for final exams. I'm Barad Wadge, and I'm a junior doctor working in the East Midlands. This is the latest in our Neurology series and today we're going to be talking about headaches. We hope you enjoy the episode and please remember to subscribe to our channel, follow our Instagram account and check out our website for all the latest updates. We welcome your feedback and suggestions for other topics you'd like us to cover. Headaches are among the most common presentations you're likely to come across, particularly if you're working in general practice or A&E, and may be attributable to an array of potential causes. These exist on a spectrum, from the benign but no less painful, most commonly tension headaches and medication overuse headaches, to the often debilitating but treatable, such as migraines and cluster headaches, and the more insidious, Such as space occupying lesions, meningitis, and a subarachnoid hemorrhage. We'll start by considering migraines, which is among the most common cause of headache and thought to affect up to 15% of us, disproportionately affecting women in the ratio of about 3 to 1. We'll discuss some of the risk factors and common triggers, diagnostic criteria and key clinical features, the management of migraines, both prophylactically and abortively, and some special considerations to think about in females. The pathophysiology of migraines is poorly understood and all manner of suggestions have been put forward. These include increased cerebral edema and intracerebral vasodilatation during acute attacks, neuronal hyperexcitability and trigeminal nerve dysfunction as a consequence of increased vasoactive neuropeptide release such as CGRP and substance P. Migraines are strongly associated with obesity in a family history. However, common triggers may be remembered by the mnemonic CHOCOLATE which are implicated in up to 50% of individuals with migraine. These are chocolate, hangovers, the oral contraceptive pill, cheese and caffeine, orgasm, lions, alcohol, travel and exercise. When we think of migraines, we tend to think of an aura followed by a headache. And whilst it's true that this is the classical presentation of a migraine, migraines may manifest as anything ranging from an isolated aura with no subsequent headache, or episodic headaches without a preceding aura. Let's talk about some of the prod- prodromal features that may orgo a migraine attack, typical migraine auras and a description of the headache itself. In the hours and days leading up to a migraine attack, individuals may tend to notice a change in mood, in cravings and increased lethargy and tiredness. A migraine aura may present in a variety of ways and include visual disturbances such as a hemianopia or central scotoma and other abnormal distortions such as dots, lines and zigzags. Other features in keeping with an aura include somatosensory disturbances such as paresthesia of the arms and face, motor disturbances such as dysarthria, hemiparesis and ataxia, and problems with speech such as dysphasia. Auras often last 15 to 30 minutes and may be followed shortly after by a headache. Headaches are typically unilateral and throbbing in nature, and may be associated with nausea and vomiting, photophobia and allodynia, or hypersensitivity to even simple everyday stimuli. The diagnosis of migraine is a clinical one, and essentially brings together a lot of the things we've discussed already. Importantly, the diagnostic criteria differs in the case of migraine with aura, and migraine without aura. In the case of migraine without aura, individuals must have had at least five attacks for whom an alternative diagnosis is not available and comprise headaches that last between four and 72 hours in duration, are unilateral, pulsating, moderate to severe in intensity, or are made worse by, or lead to the avoidance of, physical activity, and are associated with nausea and vomiting or photo and phonophobia. For migraine with aura, meanwhile, individuals must have had at least two attacks fulfilling the following criteria again in whom an alternative diagnosis is not available at least one reversible episode of visual sensory or speech disturbance such as a homonymous visual symptoms or unilateral sensory impairment gradual onset over two minutes with symptoms lasting between 2 and 60 minutes and a headache that fulfills the criteria for migraine without aura described previously and beginning during or within 60 minutes of the aura. That's all pretty academic and probably not worth memorising, as migraines do tend to present fairly typically, but it is just worth bearing these diagnostic features in mind. The mainstay of treatment for migraine is oral triptans, combined with other over-the-counter analgesia such as paracetamol or NSAIDs. It's important to note that triptans are contraindicated if there is a background of ischemic heart disease, coronary artery vasospasm, uncontrolled hypertension, and recent lithium, SSRI, or ergotamine use. Side effects of triptans, although rare, include arrhythmias, angina, and an increased risk of myocardial infarction. Prophylactically, propranolol or topiramate may be trialled and has been shown to have good outcomes in reducing attack frequency, although the latter has largely fallen out of favour due to its teratogenic effects. There are a few considerations to think about in female patients. The incidence of migraine, particularly with aura, and ischemic stroke is increased with concomitant use of the combined oral contraceptive pill, alongside other risk factors such as obesity, smoking, diabetes and hyperlipidemia. The progestogen only pill or non-hormonal contraception should be offered instead in these cases. One of the main headache diagnoses to discuss are cluster headaches, which belong to a class of headaches called trigeminal autonomic cephalagia, and characterised by distribution in the region of the trigeminal nerve with ipsilateral autonomic features. Cluster headaches are overwhelmingly more common in men and among the more disabling of headache disorders. Cluster headaches may present as acute severe pain around one eye associated with a watery bloodshot eye, lacrimation, facial flushing and rarely ptosis and meiosis. Attacks may last anywhere between 15 minutes to 3 hours, and come on once or twice a day, often at night. An episode, or cluster, may last up to 3 months, followed by pain-free periods of months or even years, although occasionally these may become chronic as opposed to episodic. Treatment in the acute setting is with 100% high flow oxygen, using a 15 litres rebreath mask alongside subcutaneous or nasal triptans. Also worth mentioning is trigeminal neuralgia or tic douloureux, so named for the intensely painful facial twitch the condition causes. Trigeminal neuralgia is characterized by paroxysmal attacks of unilateral intense sharp stabbing pain lasting seconds, often in the mandibular and maxillary distribution of the trigeminal nerve. It may occur as a primary disorder, although there is a secondary cause to be found in 15% of cases such as compression of the trigeminal nerve root by aneurysmal vessels or a tumour, multiple sclerosis, herpes zoster infection, and skull-based malformation. For that reason, an MRI head is often indicated to exclude secondary causes. The mainstay of treatment are analgesics for neuropathic pain, such as carbamazepine and gabapentin, although more rarely, surgical interventions such as microvascular decompression may be indicated. Two of the most important red flags to exclude for patients presenting with headache are a subarachnoid haemorrhage and meningitis. Subarachnoid haemorrhages are caused by spontaneous bleeding into the subarachnoid space, most often as a result of a berry aneurysm rupture, typically at the junction between the posterior communicating and internal carotid artery. There is an association between polycystic kidneys and aortic coarctation, as well as connective tissue disorders such as Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, with other risk factors including smoking, hypertension and coexisting bleeding disorders. Subarachnoid hemorrhages may present as the characteristic sudden, devastating, worst ever thunderclap headache in the occipital region associated with vomiting, seizures and collapse. There may be concomitant retinal, subhyaloid and vitreous hemorrhages with the presence of both a subarachnoid and vitreous hemorrhage known as Terson syndrome, which is associated with increased mortality. There may also be focal neurological symptoms at the time of the original insult, which may suggest the location of the lesion. For example, there may be pupillary changes suggestive of a third nerve palsy in the case of a posterior communicating artery aneurysm. Neck stiffness and Koenig's and Brudzinski's signs are later signs of a subarachnoid hemorrhage and may take around six hours to develop. Koenig's sign is elicited by asking the patient to flex their hip and knees to 90 degrees with subsequent extension of the knee inducing pain. Brudzinski's sign, meanwhile, can be observed when forced flexion of the neck results in involuntary reflexive flexion of the hips. It's important to note that Koenig's and Brudzinski's signs may be observed in both subarachnoid haemorrhages and meningitis and therefore a thorough history and workup is necessary to distinguish the pair. The mainstay of investigation is a prompt CT head, which may detect 95% of subarachnoid hemorrhages within 24 hours. If, however, the CT returns negative, but clinical suspicion remains high, a lumbar puncture should be performed at least 12 hours after the onset of symptoms to assess for xanthochromia, which is the yellow appearance of the CSF produced by the breakdown of blood into bilirubin. An LP performed earlier than this may show blood, however it's difficult to distinguish between a true subarachnoid haemorrhage and simply a bloody tap. Management in the first instance is supportive and involves urgent referral to neurosurgery, maintaining cerebral perfusion, calcium channel blockers such as nimodipine to reduce cerebral artery vasospasm and therefore ischemia. Subarachnoid haemorrhages are surgical emergencies, and definitive management involves imaging with a catheter or CT angiography to identify the site of the aneurysm before endovascular coiling or surgical clipping, with the former becoming the increasingly preferred approach. The final diagnosis I wanted to outline is meningitis. Acute bacterial meningitis is an emergency, caused most often due to streptococcus pneumonia or Neisseria meningitides. The latter produces the pathognomic non-blanching petechial rash and warrants prompt benzyl penicillin administration before further management. Viral meningitis, by comparison, is benign and self-limiting, with implicated organisms including enterovirus and cytomegalovirus. Features of acute bacterial meningitis include fever, headache, neck stiffness with a positive Koenig's sign as well as a positive Brudzinski's sign. Patients may also display septicemic features such as shock, tachycardia, hypotension and a prolonged capillary refill time, for whom prompt blood cultures, IV antibiotics and I2 involvement for airway and inotropic support is essential. Without, where meningitic features predominate such as neck stiffness and photophobia without shock, it's important to examine for features such as suggestive of raised intracranial pressure. These include papilledema on fundoscopy, seizures, reduced GCS, and focal neurology. If raised ICP is suspected, early escalation to ITU, dexamethasone, and IV antibiotics are key. If there's no concern about raised ICP, prompt LP and intravenous antibiotics should be initiated. Broad spectrum antibiotics such as cephataxin are administered in the first instance, with subsequent directed therapy depending on culture and sensitivities. Other important things to remember are to isolate the patient for the first 24 hours, notifying public health and administering prophylactic antibiotics to close household contacts of the patient upon discussion with public health or local infectious disease team. It's worth familiarising yourself with the differences in CSF in bacterial, viral and tubercular meningitis as this is a common exam topic. Broadly speaking, bacterial meningitis produces a more turbid appearing CSF, with protein exceeding 1.5 grams per litre and CSF glucose less than half the plasma glucose. Viral meningitis, meanwhile, produces clearer CSF with protein levels less than one gram per litre and CSF glucose greater than half the plasma glucose. That about wraps up this episode of MedTalks on headaches and headache disorders. We've touched upon some common causes such as migraines and cluster headaches, their presenting features and management, as well as the key red flag diagnoses to be aware of. I hope you found this episode useful, and we look forward to bringing you more episodes as part of our finals countdown series. Thanks.